Well, I would invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 1 with me for this message entitled, Desires That Produce Joy. Desires That Produce Joy. The theme of Philippians is rejoice. To live is Christ and to die is gain. We've been in the last few weeks hovering around verses 18 to 26, which most clearly articulates this theme. And today we're finally going to work our way through it as a complete unit. As you read through the book of Philippians, this particular section really is, is a very personal, intimate section. Paul essentially opens his heart to his friends at the church at Philippi and gives them a window into the deepest thoughts that he has about his current circumstances and his future. It's Kind of surprising in some ways because these are the thoughts that you would typically only share with a close friend, maybe a family member. But Paul uh, spreads them to a public audience because the Holy Spirit gave him that freedom. The Holy Spirit intended that these internal thoughts, these struggles that Paul is having in his own heart would be for our instruction. And so as we look at this passage, we can follow Paul as he follows Christ. This is the time of the year when uh, life gets a little hairy. The, the puzzle pieces of our lives kind of get jumbled around and, and we're often trying to figure out how to make everything fit, right? To make matters worse. Not only are we getting new schedules, but it's almost like someone hits the fast forward button and so that while we're trying to get our schedules filled out, we're being propelled forward and before we know it, it's Thanksgiving. Right now, many of us are trying to figure out that new rhythm of life, balancing schedules and classes and sports and ministry and other activities. With many of these competing priorities, we're often left exhausted and worn out. Sure, we have moments of fun and fulfillment, but we're often just trying to get through each day without literally or figuratively crashing what we're going to learn from the Apostle Paul in this section as we eavesdrop on his inner thoughts is how to experience joy no matter what life brings. Specifically, we observe in Paul, in his heart, three desires that enable him to rejoice in the midst of his circumstances. And those three desires are these. First, the desire to see Christ exalted in his life, verses 18 to 20. Second, the desire to serve Christ for the benefit of others, verses 21 to 26. And then third, the desire to see Christ face to face, verses 21 to 23. The desire to see Christ exalted, the desire to serve Christ for the benefit of others, and the desire to see Christ face to face. Now those last two desires, as you may have noticed in, in the passages that they cover, really overlap in the passage. And this is because this is not a typical Pauline uh, theological argument. Uh, this passage really is the verbalized expression of the internal wrestling in Paul's heart. And so rather than a linear progression of thought, we have that, that kind of back and forth uh, wrestling that we often have in our minds when we're trying to work something out and figure something out. Now, Paul is he's not confused. He's not indecisive, but like many of us have had, this is a moment where he knows what the end result needs to be, 
He just needs to work it out in his soul. Now, as it turns out, those three desires correspond to the acronym of joy. Jesus, others, and you. Paul wanted nothing more than that Jesus would be exalted. Second to that, he was committed to serving Christ to see Him formed in the lives of others. And then he placed his own desire to see Christ face to face last. By having those desires and in that order, Paul experienced joy in his life. And by having those desires in that order, you and I also can experience joy. So let's read the text and then we'll work through it. Follow along as I read the end of verse 18 down to verse 26. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Coming back to verse 18 and 19, Paul's rejoicing is not primarily based on his confidence of deliverance. Let's get that clear. He rather primarily rejoices that his circumstances will result in the exaltation of Christ. He couldn't be more clear of that when he says in verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. If Paul's confidence in his deliverance proves to be true, Christ will be exalted. On the other hand, if, if Paul's confidence in his deliverance proves to be false, Christ will be exalted. So no matter what happens, if he lives or if he dies, Christ will be exalted, and in that, Paul rejoices. That is his earnest expectation and hope. Now having said that, Paul is convinced that he will be delivered. I know, he says. There are multiple ways to interpret what Paul means by being delivered. But I am persuaded that he is referring to his deliverance from Roman condemnation and his release from Roman custody. And there are a few reasons for this, but I'm going to give you what I believe to be the strongest and most ignored reason. And if you want more evidence, you can come talk to me later. We know that the key to interpreting Scripture is context. In this case, I want to draw your attention to the historical context. The context of Paul's experience. Paul wrote these words, as we've said, during his Roman imprisonment. And by that point, he had been in prison about three years. He spent a little over two years in prison in Caesarea. 
And then he was transferred to Rome, and he's been under house arrest for somewhere around a year or so. We've said that Philippians is written around 60 or 61 A.D., which means that Philippians is written after Romans, 1 Corinthians, and 2 Corinthians. Now here's why that's important. Compared to Paul's life before this three-year imprisonment, Paul's current circumstances are actually quite good. And when we think about Paul's experience, I think you'll agree with me and with Paul that he really has little to be concerned about at this time. Now turn over so I can show this to you in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. This is a helpful chapter for us because in seeking to defend his apostleship from those who would charge Paul with only being in the ministry for the fame or the money, Paul details his suffering to say that no, he's in this for the sake of Christ. In 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says this, verses 23-28, to Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, meaning I'm more so a servant of Christ, in far more labor, labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on, on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers from the city, dangers from the wilderness, dangers on the sea, Dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me for, of concern for all the churches. Remember, all of that is before Paul is arrested in Jerusalem transferred to Caesarea, and then transferred to Rome. This is a man who has experienced an enormous amount of suffering. He's had near-death experiences. He's been in frightening situations. He's experienced abuse, beatings, stoning. He's experienced danger at every turn. You know what Paul has experienced the last year under house arrest at Rome? Peace, safety, and a whole lot of ministry. The last words of the book of Acts describes it this way. And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness, unhindered. Philippians was written somewhere about in the middle of those two years. Now, significantly, the reason that Paul was in Rome so long without a trial is because his accusers never showed up. Not even the local Jews knew who Paul was. And even when he called the Jews of Rome together and he explained the gospel to them, Acts 28 simply says some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. And when they did not agree with each other, they began leaving. So they weren't a threat to Paul. And after a year, it became clear that the Jews in Jerusalem were not going to be sending any lawyers or prosecutors to Rome. As far as they were concerned, it seems that he was out of Israel. 
He was no longer spreading his religion among those in their area. And that, that's all they cared about. He's out of our hair. So all this to say, the historical context that Paul is that Paul had every reason to be confident. Even to the point of saying, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. I know that Caesar is not going to condemn me. No one's even accusing me of anything. And by the way, by this point, there was no Roman persecution of Christians. That came in later years. So there was no threat against Paul from Rome or from the Jews at this time. Now, one of the objections that casts doubt on this particular view is the fact that Paul talks about death so much in this passage. If you look back at Philippians chapter 1, he says, as we read in verse 21, uh, excuse me, at the end of verse 20, that Christ be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And then verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then verse 23, having the desire to depart and be with Christ. And so the question comes, why would Paul talk about death so much if he's convinced that he's going to live? And I think the answer is pretty simple. By the time we get to verse 20 and 21 and 23, Paul is no longer talking about what will happen to him in his circumstances. What he's doing is he's reflecting on his view of life. We'll come back to that a little later. Remember all that suffering that Paul experienced that he detailed in 2 Corinthians 11? You can add to that the persecution and suffering that we know he experienced after that. Which included more beatings, more false accusations, more threats to his life, and at least one other shipwreck. Paul is tired. His body is worn out. He is more than ready to pass the baton to the next generation of, of leaders in the church and to enjoy the glories of heaven. And so even though Paul is not in danger now, he knows that as soon as he gets released, what's going to happen? More suffering. And so he moves in his train of thought from confidence that Christ Will be uh, confidence in his release to affirming his confidence that Christ ultimately will be glorified in his body, whether by life or by death, whenever that may happen. So again, his talk about death doesn't express doubt about his release. It just reflects his readiness to reach the finish line of faith and receive his reward. Now look at verse 19 there of Philippians 1 and notice the means by which Paul believes he will be delivered. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. Despite the circumstances which are in Paul's favor uh, of an upcoming release, Paul does not trust in man. Paul trusts in God. And so he affirms to the Philippians that it is both their prayers and the Holy Spirit who is answering their prayers that will ultimately lead to his release. Now, this happened in Acts chapter 12 with the Apostle Peter. You may recall that Herod put James to death. That pleased the Jews. And so he's like, let me do that again with Peter. So he arrests Peter. And the church knows that Peter is about to die. And so while Peter's in prison, the church there in Jerusalem holds an all-night prayer vigil for Peter's release. What they didn't expect was that the Holy Spirit would answer their prayer by miraculously releasing Peter in the middle of the night from prison. And if you recall how Paul 
first ministered in Philippi, the same thing happened to him. He and Silas were in prison. And the Holy Spirit miraculously released them as well through an earthquake. And so in the same way, Paul knew that through the intercessory prayers of the church of Philippi and probably believers everywhere else, the Spirit would sovereignly orchestrate His release in due time. Whether He did it miraculously in some way, or whether through providentially working through normal means, the lack of prosecution, the disinterest of Rome, the Spirit would ultimately provide for Paul's release. So from his circumstances, Paul turns his, to his desire there in verse 20. Clearly, whatever happens, his desire is that Christ would be exalted. His release would mean his own personal vindication that the charges against him were false. But more than that, it would vindicate the Gospel. That the Gospel of Jesus Christ was not an existential threat to the Jewish state or to the Roman Empire. Christians were not rebels to be feared or punished. The Gospel is not anti-Jew, but the fulfillment of Messianic promises. And the Messiah is not a threat to Caesar because the Messiah's kingdom is not of this world. Paul's release would prove these things to be true. And so though Paul mentions not being put to shame there in verse 20, his concern was not for his own reputation as such, but it mattered to Paul only to the degree that it reflected on Christ. You see, if the apostle of Jesus Christ was put to shame, that meant that Jesus would be put to shame. And if the apostle was vindicated, then that means Christ was vindicated. And that was Paul's greatest desire. So Paul's desire is that Christ would be exalted no matter what took place. And that should be our desire as well. You know, to put it one way, the Christians should be concerned that they do not break the third of the Ten Commandments. You know that commandment, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Most of us have grown up being taught that that means you do not use the name of God as a curse word. But that's not at all what that command means. This command means to not take the name of the Lord upon yourself in vain. It means to, to not claim to be a follower of the Lord your God and then live in rebellion against Him. Why? Because that brings reproach against the Lord. It confuses people about who God is. And as we've seen in recent messages, what we ought to make our aim is to live for the glory of Christ to rightly represent Him to others. We are to, to present to others through our lives an accurate picture of the character of the God we serve so that He would be seen as the great God that He is. So to the degree that it's within our power to do so, it should be our desire to see Christ exalted in our lives, whether by life or by death. But you know, in the same way that uh, the Jews and many people mocked and scorned Jesus as He lived and died righteously, we can't control how people will interpret our lives in the here and now. No doubt when Paul was martyred a few years after this, uh, his enemies rejoiced 
And one would think, well, does that mean that Christ was reproached? Well, in some ways, yes. But we should live in such a way, think about this carefully, that when eyes are open to the truth, or when unbelievers stand face to face with God, that they will have to give glory to God as they remember our testimony. How our lives gave an accurate picture of God. I'm persuaded that Paul never forgot how Stephen, as he watched him die, responded as he was being pelted by rocks until there was no life left in him. My guess is that it was pretty soon after Paul's conversion that his mind went back to that moment when he watched Stephen die and he gave glory to God for how Stephen forgave his murderers and ask God to forgive them. So believer, know that when you are faithful to Him, Christ will be exalted now or later by life or by death. And that is cause for rejoicing. Because remember, joy is the emotion of, of delight or strength. And we are strengthened when we are committed to seeing Christ exalted. Well, the second and third desires flow out of this desire to exalt Christ. The desire to serve Christ for the benefit of others was a primary way of exalting Christ by His life. And the desire to see Christ face to face is a way of exalting Christ by His death. And both desires produce joy. Now, as I said, these two desires are grappling for dominance in Paul's heart. And so the structure of the remaining verses isn't such that we can walk verse by verse to look at one and then the other. So we'll, we'll look at one desire through the text and then we'll have to go back again to look at the other desire. So the first desire is the desire to see Christ exalted. And let's now consider the second desire to serve Christ for the benefit of others. Look at verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, but if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. And I do not know which to choose, but I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Here, the desire to live for Christ, to serve Christ for the benefit of others is stated three ways. Verse 21, to live is Christ. Verse 22, to live will result in fruitful labor. And then in verse 24, to live is more necessary for your sake. Now, we know after the last few messages what to live is Christ means. Right To live as Christ means to have our goal, our motivation, our identity, our power, our mission, our anticipation, and our manner of life all defined by Christ. Paul's entire life revolved around living for Christ's glory, being controlled by His love, being defined by Him, being empowered by Him, representing His interests, looking for His return, and imitating Christ in his life. His whole life was centered around Christ. Recall that Paul was a Pharisee. Really, he was a rising star among the ranks of Jewish leaders. 
As a result, he was outwardly religious and followed the Mosaic law and the laws of men established around that law. But inwardly, he did not know God. And when Messiah came, instead of bowing the knee to Jesus Christ, Paul hated him and persecuted the church, even murdering the followers of Christ. But then Jesus opened his eyes to see that from birth he had been a sinner who deserved the eternal wrath of God for his sin. And in his infinite grace and rich mercy and great love, Christ saved Paul and forgave him of all of his wickedness. And more than that, he appointed Paul into his service and made him an apostle to represent him to the Jewish and Gentile world. So what else could Paul do in response except give himself wholly in the service of Christ? His life was Christ. And imitating his Savior, Paul lived in the service of others. You know, though Paul never met Jesus before he ascended to heaven, Paul knew the words of Mark 10.45, that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. He knew that Jesus lived His life in service to others. He would have heard what happened the night, that, the night before Jesus died. How Jesus, knowing what was about to take place, got up from the table and performed the service of the lowest slave by washing the disciples' feet. No doubt He would have been told the, the words that Jesus spoke after that where He said, You call Me Teacher and Lord, and You are right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and Teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I gave you an example that you also should do as I did to you. So taking his cue from Jesus, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9, For though I am free from all men, I made myself a slave of all, so that I may win more. He had the attitude in life that he was willing to, to let go of every right, to, to relinquish every privilege in order to remove any barrier to the gospel. And he gave of himself in every way to see sinners saved and the saints sanctified. He said in Colossians 1.28, we proclaim him admonishing everyone and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. He says, for this purpose... I also labor, striving according to His power, which mightily works within me. That was Paul's life, to serve for the benefit of others. Now note what he says there in verse 25 of Philippians 1. He says, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He chose to prefer what would benefit other believers rather than what would benefit himself. He chose to prefer what would work and help others toward their sanctification over his own glorification. And the end result is that Christ is exalted. Look at verse 26. He says, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. I know many of you have the ESV, and I think that one 
translates it better where it says, so that in me you may have ample cause to what? Glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. In other words, unlike what the NAS suggests, the proud confidence or the glorying or the the, the boasting as the word most literally means is not in Paul, but in Christ. Paul's release, his return to the Philippians, would cause them to exalt Christ because of what he's done. And that fulfills Paul's desire that Christ be exalted by his life. That's the idea. So he served others for the glory of Christ. And this life of service produced in Paul joy. He says, as you recall, in Philippians chapter 1, verses 3 and 4, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all. And then in chapter 2, verse 17, he says, But even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And then again in chapter 4, he says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and my crown, in this way stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. Paul served others. He lived his life in service for Christ for the benefit of others. And the Spirit produced in him joy. There really is a a unique and beautiful experience of joy when you give yourself in service to others and you see God work in them through you. When your eyes are not on yourself, but they're on Christ, and they're on what Christ is doing in the lives of others, and especially when the Lord has used you along the way, we rejoice. Why? Because that's the fulfillment of the promise of Psalm 37.4. That, that promise is, delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. So the more that you look at Christ, the more that you grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ, when you see His desires fulfilled, which are the salvation and sanctification of His people and the exaltation of His name, when you see Christ's desires fulfilled, which are your desires, that's when you have joy. So even though Paul knows that continuing to live will result in more persecution for him, more trials and more difficulties, he desires to follow that path because his desire is to live for and like Christ, to see others grow in their walk with Christ. That's the desire to serve Christ for the benefit of others. Let's now consider the final desire, the desire to see Christ face to face. Look again at verses 21 to 23. The desire to see Christ face to face. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. But I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. So at the same time as wanting to live for Christ and experience the fruit of Christ's work in the lives of others, Paul is more than ready to go to heaven. 
His desire for death is not just to put an end to the suffering of his life. It's not just to end the misery. I'm done. I'm finished. I don't want any more of this. No, his eye is on the reality that to die is gain. Or in the words of verse 23, to depart and be with Christ. For that is very much better. We know in this life that wherever you stand, the grass is always greener on the other side. The problem is, you get to the other side, and the same is true again. The grass is greener on the other side. But in the case of life in this body, compared to life in the presence of the Lord, that dynamic does not hold true. But it's not just that it's false to say that we'll be in heaven thinking, oh man, don't you remember the good old days on earth? It wouldn't even be right to say the grass is greener in heaven. Because if you were to say that, you would be implying that the difference between earth and between heaven is measured in shades. And that couldn't be further from the truth. Paul does not say he wants to be Depart and be with Christ because that's better. Nor does he say that it's much better. He says it's very much better. Listen to how he describes this dynamic in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. For, the, for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Far Beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Now remember, when he says light affliction there, that's the man who's experienced all of that suffering that he talked about in chapter 11. How could someone who's gone through so much say, that's just some light affliction? Well, he can say that because one day in heaven is better than a thousand days on earth. Psalm 84.10 And also, because once we get to heaven, we're not just going to be there for one day. We'll be in the glorious presence of Christ forever. You know, the experience of looking at a picture of the Grand Canyon cannot be compared to the experience of standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. If you've been there, you understand that. But right now, all we have is a picture of heaven. And not even, even that. We have a, a, a description. And those descriptions that we have are written by those who've been to heaven in visions and tried to describe in human language indescribable wonders. And so, when someone describes the Grand Canyon, while words wouldn't do justice to the grandeur of it, at least there would be familiarity with the kinds of things they would be describing. But when it comes to heaven, it is so far outside of our human experience that when we read of streets paved with transparent gold, such that you can see the foundations of the new Jerusalem, which is made up of, of every kind of precious jewel, it's difficult to wrap our minds around what the concrete in heaven is like. Or when we think about how our bodies will be transformed to be like His glorious body. And our souls will be glorified so that there will be no vestiges of sin in us anymore. 
we really can't comprehend what life free from sin is like because we've only known what it's like to be infected with the curse of sin. You know, we've spent our entire Christian life talking about Christ, hearing about Christ, reading about Christ, talking to Christ, but not hearing His voice. That it's impossible to imagine what it will be like to see Him face to face. To, to hear the sound of His voice. To hear Him speak your name with brightly lit eyes and a wide smile and outstretched arms. At best, we can only imagine. But even our imaginations fail us. Even still, I don't think it's possible to be a Christian and not want to depart and be with Christ after picturing in your mind what the Scripture tells us about heaven. I don't care how good your life is, how much you love your family or what you're looking forward to in this life. Five seconds in the presence of Christ is better than all the prosperity and the ease and the happiness on earth. Now how much more when life is full of trials and suffering, broken relationships, when you keep falling to temptation? It's not hard to understand why Paul would want to depart and be with Christ. What may be a little bit difficult is to understand what Paul means when he says this in verse 22. At the end of it, I do not know which to choose. But I am hard pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and be with Christ, for that is very much better. Yet, to remain on the, in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Doesn't it sound like Paul is trying to decide whether to live or to die? I mean, the word choose at the end of verse 22 makes it sound that way, but is, is that really what Paul is doing? Is he trying to choose between life and death? No, not exactly. Every major translation uses the word choose there at the end of verse 22. And the reason they do that is because that's exactly what the word means. But just as in every language, words have nuances. And when it comes to the word choice, a very close concept is preference. We tend to choose what we prefer. And Paul is here is not choosing whether to live or to die. He doesn't have legitimate control over that. What he is choosing is which of the two desires is going to drive his actions and attitudes. Am I going to prefer to die and be with Christ and let that be what drives me? Or am I going to prefer to continue to live and serve for the benefit of others and let that be what drives me? Those are the two choices. And you know what? We had a living, breathing example of this in our former pastor, Tom Leake. Back in 2018, he was given six to nine months to live with stage four pancreatic cancer. He could have chosen, as many do in such a situation, to accept that diagnosis and prepare himself to see Jesus. Had he done that, no one on earth would have thought that that was a wrong or a bad choice. In fact, I know of two other prominent Christian leaders who basically had the same diagnosis and they chose to prepare themselves to see Christ. And they died within months. But for Pastor Leek, even while knowing 
that to die is gain. His heart's desire was to remain and continue to serve the Lord and preach God's Word for as long as the Lord would give him breath. And that's exactly what he did. He endured incredible suffering, but he had a remarkable ministry for over two years before he departed to be with Christ. Now, we don't know what Paul's life would have looked like had he chosen to prefer to die and be with Christ. Perhaps he simply would have stopped challenging his or defending himself against the false accusations. Maybe that would have led to a faster martyrdom. Maybe he would have let his many injuries because of all the the suffering he experienced to just overtake him and limit his mobility and slow him down and get weaker and perhaps lead to his natural death in that way. We don't know what it would have looked like, but, but rather than making, departing, and being with Christ his dominant desire, he determined to prefer to remain. And as a result, he, he maintained his legal battle and he won. And he was released about a year later. And then he continued to travel extensively and proclaim the gospel. And after this, he wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, letters that contain essential truths for us to understand church leadership and life. Well, how does the desire to depart and be with Christ produce joy in us? Well, we're just past the summer. Many of us went on some kind of vacation or trip. Activities that we've been looking forward to since the spring. Isn't it true that when you were in the springtime planning out those trips, preparing for your vacation, there was something in you that said, oh, I can't wait And then when school was tough, or work was busy, or there were other challenges, your mind went to that upcoming vacation and you said, just a little longer. Just keep going. It'll be here before you know it. That's joy. Again, joy is the emotion of delight or strength. And so when our eyes look ahead to the seeing of Christ face to face, we will find strength to persevere today. Well, in closing, you don't have to be a Christian very long to understand that on the one hand, you can desire to depart and be with Christ, and and on on the other hand, desire to remain and live. But I would ask you, is your desire to remain for the purpose of living for Christ or for other reasons? The Lord saved me when I was 14 years old, and I remember being in youth group one day and we were talking about the return of Christ and I remember having the thought very clearly, I would love for Christ to come back, but not until I get married. Maybe for some of you, there's a desire to postpone the coming of Christ so that you can have a family or accomplish your career goals or check items off your bucket list. I'm just going to ask this question and let you noodle on it. Is your desire to live grounded in what you want out of life? Or is it grounded in the opportunity to exalt Christ and serve others? Think about that. Here's what I can promise from God's Word. When our overarching desire 
is the exaltation of Christ. That no matter what happens in our life, our greatest desire is that He be glorified in and through us. We will find delight and strength because we'll be looking at life through the lens of God's Word and the Spirit will produce joy in us. When we desire to to live serving Christ and not ourselves, we will find joy in losing ourselves in serving others. We'll experience the blessing of, of being part of what God is doing in the lives of others as we represent Him and minister to others through our conversations and our works. And finally, when our desire is to depart and be with Christ, we will find joy knowing that when we see Christ face to face, we will have joy forevermore. We will not mourn the loss of our lives. We will rejoice at the gain of eternal life. So may the Spirit work in each one of us the desire to exalt Christ above all. The desire to to serve Christ for the benefit of others and the desire to depart and be with Him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we think about these desires, it's certainly convicting for me. I'm sure for each one of us. We can be so entangled with the things of this life, so distracted by the busyness of life, that we ignore, neglect, prioritize other things instead of these desires. Forgive us, Lord. Forgive us for looking at these eternal realities and thinking that somehow they are on par with the temporal matters of life. We know that our lives, the the things that we do, our work, our education, relationships, all of those are important because those are all means by which we can give You glory and live for You. And so I pray that as we live throughout our lives, whatever responsibilities You entrust to us, whatever opportunities You bring our way, whatever relationships You bring into our path, that we would have our aim to give You glory through it all. So that Christ would be seen as the awesome God that He is. We long to see You face to face, Lord. We pray that You would come. But until You come, may You find us faithful. Amen.